All right, let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 23. For those of you that are new to Sovereign Grace, we are honored to have you here this morning and a part of our service. This gospel that we have written in front of us is written by a man called Luke. He was a doctor, and he has been assigned the task by the most honorable Theophilus to compile a narrative concerning the things of Jesus. And he's been asked to do it by Theophilus so that we may have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. So this whole book is written, it really is an eyewitness account from numerous witnesses, hundreds of witnesses, to really establish what exactly did take place so that we may have certainty concerning the things of Christ, about who he is and why he died and what all that Means We now come to the last three messages of this gospel. So we're actually going to be finishing it the week before Christmas, and then we'll move on after that. But this text that we have before us is indeed a good one. If you're making notes, I've called this message the realities of the resurrection. And we're going to read together from verse 50 of chapter 23 through to the end of verse 12. Of chapter 24, this is the word of the Lord. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. And he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone when no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested, according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you. While he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Your word is powerful. And Lord, when it stands and sits in our hands, it comes alive in a way that only your Holy Spirit can make it do so. Lord, this book is unlike any other book because this book, unlike any other book, has been written by you. You have breathed out these words. So, Lord, would you bring them alive in our minds today? Would you bring them alive in our hearts? Would we be changed? 
by what we see. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I was thinking afresh this week just how incredible being a Christian really is. And being a Christian is a wonderful thing, is it not? Being a Christian means to know that you are forgiven of your sin. And we could just pause there, and that is a happy place. We have been forgiven of our sin. It has been removed as far as the east is from the west. When Jesus cried out on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's thinking of us. He's thinking of a people to follow that are in desperate need of the Lord's forgiveness. And when we put our faith in Jesus, the Bible makes it clear that in that moment we are forgiven. Removed as far as the east is from the west. Our sins are washed clean from. We are blotted out from our sin. We are washed as white as snow. What a happy place that is, don't you think? But he didn't then just leave us there. He also reconciled us and adopted us into the very family of God. You and I, now through faith in Jesus, are heirs with Christ. Literally sons and daughters of God Most High. God in his grace has saved us and he's called us to himself. We weren't just brought out from our sin. We were brought into a relationship with God the Father. He now watches over our coming and going, both now and forevermore. He hems us in, both behind and before. He watches over us with the patient and loving care of a father to a child. And one day, the Bible says, for all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the Bible's clear that heaven will be our home. A place where there'll be no more sin, no more pain, no more suffering, a place of eternal joy. A place that is called often in the Bible, literally, paradise. And to guarantee that we will make it to that place, the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, that the Holy Spirit seals us. He is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Listen, that's what it means to be a Christian. It means to be right with God, forgiven of your sin, redeemed, adopted, assured that heaven is your home, and guaranteed that it will take place. Is that not good news? But here's the reality. The harsh and honest reality is that everything we stand for as Christians hinges on and hangs on one particular thing actually taking place. And it's this. Jesus Christ Rising from the dead. If Jesus Christ did not raise from the dead, then you and I are wasting our time. Everything we've just done in singing, it is a waste of time. It is a figment of our imaginations. If Jesus Christ did not raise from the dead, then Christianity is nothing more than a cruel hoax to gullible people all the way around the world. It is that significant. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then everything we believe in is in vain. And they're not my, my words. They're God's words. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 14, we read, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. You've wasted your time. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then everything we believe in is in vain. If it was in fact found that Jesus did not rise from the dead, if it was proven that he did not indeed rise bodily and actually and physically from the dead, then all of our faith, indeed the whole of Christianity, would indeed crumble. It would come down like a pack of cards. Everything you stand for would be false. And that's why these resurrection realities 
that we have before us this morning in these verses are just oh so important. They are vital. Because if this is true, if what we're reading here and studying is true, then Christianity is of infinite importance. Because it would prove that Jesus really is the Christ, the Son of God. He is God incarnate. And everything he says then is true. And he says a lot of things about how we make right with God. But if it is false, then we are more to be pitied than anybody in the universe. People that have given their lives to following Jesus. Many cases literally given their lives to following the Lord. But it's been nothing more than a cruel hoax. What the resurrection can't be is moderately important. It's either true, in which case Jesus is the Christ, or it's false and we're wasting our time. There is no in-between. And so these resurrection realities become oh so important. So I have two points this morning. Number one, the realities of what took place. We're just going to walk through the text and walk with Dr. Luke as he walks us through what took place. And then number two, the, re- the realities of what all this means. And it does mean something. But I come to this section really with one hope. And it's the hope that we may have certainty concerning this great resurrection. And that we may then live in the good of all that we see. You know, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 describes what it would be like if Jesus didn't indeed rise from the dead. But he goes on to say, but he did rise from the dead. (laughs) And he goes on to preach the realities of what all this means. And so this morning we are going to tour the text and understand why it is that we may have certainty concerning that, the issues of the resurrection, and that we may accordingly see and live in the good of all that we see. Two points, and here's the first, the realities of what took place. You know, I'm so grateful that over the last few weeks we've slowed down when it has come to the crucifixion. This is not a scene that we should be rushing through and grow familiar with. Because it's astounding. And in the verses that lead up to this moment and this text that we have before us today, we observe some overwhelming cries from Jesus himself, don't we? In verse 43, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's hanging on a cross as people around him are mocking him and spitting on him and abusing him. The soldiers before his feet are starting to divide his garments and his heart is still to love. Father, give them time. They don't get it yet. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Verse 43, truly I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. That thief on the cross that has realized you are the Christ, the Son of God, and responds in faith. His instant response is today, when you close your eyes in death, heaven will be your home. And then in verse 46, we read, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Jesus dies. He breathes his last and he dies. His body is hanging lifeless. On the cross, and his followers in that moment are filled with grief and mourning. Because in this very moment, they find themselves without a glimmer of hope. This hasn't worked out as they thought it would. Their Savior and King now lies hanging dead on a cross. It has all somehow gone horribly wrong. They are mourning, they are grieving, and then the story continues. 
And it continues with a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. Look with me at verses 50 and 51. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. Joseph himself was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a member then of the Jewish council. This is the same Jewish council that all unanimously voted, Luke tells us earlier, to ensure that Jesus Christ is crucified. Crucify him. Every last member voted. So it would appear, according to the text, that Joseph was absent from that vote. Whether he was away at the time or whether he was just not included, but the Bible is not clear. It is not clear what exactly took place. But what is clear is that Joseph did not vote to see Jesus crucified. And what is clear is that Joseph was a good and righteous See, the Bible has a number of these in, and in particular, the Gospel of Luke has a number of righteous and good people. In this regard, then, he therefore fits the pattern of pious Jews that God uses for his purposes. In Luke chapter 1, the parents of John the Baptist, if you remember all the way back when we started studying Luke, Zechariah and Elizabeth, it says in that text that they were righteous before God. They really loved God and they wanted to honor God with their lives and they longed for the coming of the Messiah. In Luke chapter 2, we see the aged Simeon in the temple who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Again, a righteous man who loved God and was waiting for the coming Messiah. And so when he met Jesus, he realized this is surely the one. Changed his life. And in Luke chapter 23, we're now introduced to Joseph of Arimathea, who is a man, we read, who is looking for the kingdom of God. What that means is he's a man that understands God's word. He's a man that is around the Bible, and he's waiting for the Messiah to come. And the Gospel of John tells us, actually, in fact, Joseph was a secret disciple of Jesus Christ. He knew who he was. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, uninvolved in the vote to see him crucified. But he was interested and acquisitive because he was understanding that surely this is the one that is going to bring in the kingdom of God. And yet as he returns to this scene, he is no doubt overwhelmed that Jesus Christ has died. And he is quite clearly, in the way this is written, making a commitment in this moment to be a secret disciple No more. This is what he does, verse 52. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. Never mind the risk, then there was no time to waste. The Sabbath was about to begin. In Jewish custom, the Sabbath would begin at 6 o'clock on a Friday night. Once it gets dark, the Sabbath begins. And it is clear that the Sabbath is coming. It is starting to get dark. So Joseph is in a hurry. He goes straight to the top. He goes to Pilate and he asks for Jesus' body. He has a tomb that has been made for his family. And he wants to treasure Jesus' body and put it in his tomb. 
Joseph himself is a member of the council, so it wouldn't be conspicuous for him to go to Pilate and ask for Jesus' body. That would really raise no questions. He's granted the body of Jesus, and so he quickly ensures that Jesus comes down from the cross. He wraps him in a linen shroud. He puts him in his very own tomb. And then it would appear he goes home to grieve the loss of his Christ. Two guards are left to guard the tomb with the stone rolled over the front. And Joseph leaves to mourn. And yet while there were indeed secret disciples like Joseph around, there were other disciples of Jesus that were very present and very leaning in. And there was a group of women that had followed him all the way from Galilee, all the way back in Luke chapter 8, that were there all along. Look with me at verse 55. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. See, the necessary haste of the burial was important. The Sabbath was coming. You couldn't be busy burying people on the Sabbath. So everything was happening very, very quickly. And because of that, the Jewish custom of anointing the body in spices and ointments had not yet been done. And these women, as they had been looking on from afar and seeing all that Joseph was doing, putting Jesus in the tomb, had noted there was no spices taking place. No ointments taking place for the body. We we need to do that. And so they were no doubt grateful to Joseph and his efforts, but they realized more still needed to be done. And so they went home and they began to prepare spices and ointments. They couldn't do it that night. They couldn't do it the next day because it was the Sabbath and Jewish custom would not allow you to be doing these type of things to dead bodies on the Sabbath. You know, as I've thought about it this week, what a long couple of nights this must have been for these ladies. They really loved Jesus. They'd walked with him all the way since Luke chapter 8, likely for three years. They've been spending time with Jesus. Have you ever wondered like where the money came from for all of Jesus' travels with his disciples? The Bible tells us all the way back early on, it's often these ladies, there's some wealth with these ladies, and they're helping to fund these endeavors, these trips, this gospel mission that Jesus himself has on. They love him. They love what he stands for and they love what he is about. Their hearts must have been breaking on those evenings. Kent Hughes in his commentary says it this way. He says, like with Joseph of Arimathea, these women had no hope. Jesus' death was not only an event, it was a state and he was dead. So all they could hope to do now was to further honor his body. As far as they were concerned, that's all we got left to do. I mean, he's, he's dead. We can care for his body and we can at least do what we should. And so they prepare the spices and prepare the ointments. They wait there two nights. And then the very next day, the third day, they make their way to the tomb. The Gospel of Mark makes it clear that these ladies as a gaggle are fretting over how on earth are we going to move the boulder? <laughs> they're really concerned about how they're even going to get in. But they set off nonetheless to encounter the body of Jesus to seek to help him. And then this happens. Verses 1 to 3. 
But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. You know, for us as Christians now, for us as a crowd, it, it, it's hard for us to imagine this scene because we know the punchline. But they didn't. <laughs> I mean, how would you feel if a close relative of yours died, they were buried, and then two days later you went to deliver flowers and you find there's just a big hole in the ground and the coffin's door is open? That's what they're finding in this minute. They're like, what on earth has gone on here? They have no category for what is taking place. They are overwhelmed. They are perplexed. They are confused in this moment, as we would be if we rocked up to the cemetery and found the body has gone. They are confused. They are overwhelmed. And while they are confused and overwhelmed, they encounter two men, two angels indeed, in verses 4 and 5. It says, while they were perplexed about this, Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? I mean, this scene has an amusement factor to it, does it not? I mean, these two men are not men, they are angels. They radiate with the splendor of God. This word for dazzling apparel that is in the text here is the same word that is used in the transfiguration. When Jesus actually transforms and you see him for who he really is. He is radiating the greatness of God. It's the same word here. For these two angels have been in the presence of God. They are radiating. So what do these women do? What any human would do. They hit the ground to cover their eyes and they start to effectively worship them. They're amazed. There's something unique about you. You are angels, I am not. And you are very bright. So they bow down before these angels. They're getting out of the way. They are overcome with fear, and so they bow down before them. And then these angels, particularly one of the angels, speaks up, and he asks them this most important question in that second half of verse 5. Why do you seek the living among the dead? See, here's what they're saying here. Tombs are for dead people. So why would you be looking for Jesus here? I doubt the penny is dropping for these ladies in this moment. But they start to understand when quite simply and emphatically the angels say this in verse 6a. They say, he is not here, but has risen. Oh, what a happy reality that is, my friends. He is not here in this minute because he has risen again. Why are you seeking dead people amongst this tomb and this cemetery? Because he is not dead anymore. That's what they're saying in this moment. He's not here because in physicality, in actuality, in reality, he has risen from the dead. And then these angels educate these ladies by encouraging them to cast their minds back. Because quite frankly, Jesus had already told them that this would happen. Look at verse 6. He is not here but has risen. Then the instruction. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified And on the third day, rise. And they remembered 
his words. So we have to understand, my friends, Jesus has prophesied clearly and keenly about this before. Before this moment, indeed several times, Jesus has prophesied before that this would all take place. For example, Luke 9 verse 22, right after Peter's great confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus looks at him and the disciples and says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. He said it before. Matthew 9, verse 31 to 32, immediately after the transfiguration, he says it again. He says, and he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. In hindsight, they probably should have asked him a little bit more about what this all means. They were afraid of what this would mean. They misunderstood it. And so they didn't press in more. And these ladies that would have no doubt been there when these things were taking place, they had not understood those sayings prior to now. So you have to walk in their sandals. As far as they were concerned, Jesus was the Messiah. And what that all meant is somehow, some way, he's going to get to Jerusalem. He's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to take his seat in the temple. And he will rule the world. And we will be with him. But now he's dead. Their whole framework of Messiah, of Christ, was different to what we now look on and understand. They thought, they knew he was the king. They just misunderstood how he was going to save the world. And so in this very moment, they're confused. And so many of his prophecies and his parables in the old, in the, in the early gospels, they're often metaphorical. I mean, Jesus said he was a door at one point, and they're not leaving the scene going, oh, he's a door, he's a door. He's a vine at one point, he's a vine. You know, there's a lot of metaphorical nature of the way Jesus speaks. They probably just thought here, well, he's the Messiah. I don't quite understand it, but it's probably just metaphorical anyway, so we'll figure it out at the time. They had no clue that this was literal. And that this would happen to him. But in God's kindness, the lights now begin to come on as we read, and they remembered his words. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there when it starts to dawn on these ladies? Hang on. This is exactly what he said. And because this is exactly what he said, that he would indeed be taken by the authorities... And then he would be crucified. Well, that's exactly what happened. And then he would rise again. He must be alive. He must live. He's not here. Because he must be alive. Well, these ladies in their excitement become the very first witnesses to this glorious reaction of the resurrection. This is what we read in verse 9 and 10. It says, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. These great women, who just a few hours earlier had been exhausted and grief-stricken and troubled, now would become the first witnesses. 
bearing testimony to all that they had seen and all they had heard. What a moment this must have been. I doubt they walked in the door and said, hey guys, have a seat. There's something we need to share with you. I doubt that's happened. I would imagine they burst in and go, let me tell you, let me tell you. They're probably all talking at once. You know, I, I think that this would be an overwhelming moment for them. Look, Jesus, we met these two guys and we couldn't quite see them, look them in their eyes because they were like really bright and stuff. But anyway, Jesus isn't there. What do you mean he's not there? Yeah, well, he wasn't there. I mean, there's just, yeah, they said he's gone. And do you remember those sayings that he said of old? Well, it's true. You know, died, crucified, rose again. This would have been a babble of information and excitement and zeal. Because their friend and their Messiah, it would appear, is alive. Well, you would assume that these ladies holding the respect of the room, they'd be like, what? This is amazing. We should go see. Let's find him. Negative. Verse 11. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Eleven disciples, eleven obviously because Judas is now gone. Their instant reaction to this discussion is, you are crazy. There's no way they're believing them. Leon Morris in his commentary says it this way. He says, these women kept telling good news to the eleven over and over again. But these lordly males were not impressed. They thought the story to be nonsense. And they did not believe them. The apostles were not men poised on the brink of belief and needing only the shadow of an excuse before launching forth into a proclamation of resurrection. They were utterly skeptical. For even when women who who they knew well told them of their experiences, they refused to believe. And he says this. Yet in all honesty, we probably would have done the same thing. I think he's probably right. People coming in, rushing in, even people I know, saying, Hey, your friend, he's alive. Yeah, thanks. We're just trying to grieve here. I think we probably would have done the same thing. Disbelieving of him. Unclear. The first skeptics in the Bible to the resurrection of Jesus are the disciples. The apostles. The 11 men upon which he would build the church. You know, as I was thinking about this week, it was a wonderful reminder, particularly to me, of how patient we need to be with unbelieving friends and family. We tell them, and then we're like, well, they don't believe. I don't know how they don't believe. Well, there's quite a few people in the Bible that didn't believe at first. The apostles are exhibit A. They had their friends around them telling them, it's true, it's true. And their instant reaction is, you are crazy. Sometimes we just need to keep persisting, don't we? We need to keep telling, keep explaining, keep proclaiming the gospel. Because that gospel is a powerful message that can change people's minds in a moment and open blind eyes in a moment. But sometimes it just takes time. These disciples, all 11 of them, at first they all disbelieved. But then there was one among their number who was a little more curious. One who just a couple of nights earlier had denied Christ three times. Had rejected him. Said that he'd never met him. But now he's curious. Verse 12. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened.
Isn't that beautiful? Peter is now running to the tomb. You can safely assume this is not a gentle jog. He is going to see with his own eyes what has happened. He runs to the tomb. He bursts in the tomb. He sees the linen cloths. And in this moment, it says that he went home marveling. Now, it doesn't say he went home believing. It says he went home marveling. And those two words in my dictionary are two different things. There's no doubt then he was marveling. Was he believing as well? The Bible's not clear at this point. But what we do know is he's marveling, and what we do know is within days, he would indeed be believing that Christ is alive, that he has risen, and he has risen indeed. In just a few days' time, Peter would encounter the risen Christ. He would touch his hands, and he would touch his feet, and he would know, you're alive. And the rock upon which Christ would build his church would begin in that moment to proclaim the realities, not only of the death of Jesus Christ, but of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Claiming all the time, he is risen, and he is risen indeed. In Acts chapter 2, this man who just a few days earlier denied Christ three times, will burst out the doors and tell everybody, listen up, Christ has come. He has died in your place and he rose again on the third day and through him you may have life and that in abundance. He's not hiding anything anymore because he realizes Christ is the king and he is alive and he is the glorious son of God. And in years to come, Peter along with so many of the disciples would indeed give his life martyred for the faith. See, the disciples, they had a whole range of different things happening to them. Some were stoned, some were beaten to death, some were skinned, some were sawn in half. Legend would have it that Peter was crucified, and he was crucified upside down because he didn't consider it worthy to die in the same way that his Savior did. And he did all that, along with the other disciples, claiming one thing, more than anything. We've seen the risen Christ. We cannot deny what we've seen with our own eyes. Whatever you do to me, he is risen. And he is risen indeed. My friends, all these details are here then, written to us by Dr. Luke. Because he wants us to understand. You can go ahead and have certainty concerning the things of the resurrection. See, our faith as Christians isn't just some sort, you just got to believe, you know, you just got to believe just some random group of fairy tale things. No, what he's helping us see is this is objective evidence. I mean, I'm giving you names here, I'm giving you times, I'm giving you places, go ask them. You go see the place for yourself. That's why we have it recorded for us in all four Gospels through different eyes, different eyewitnesses. The Apostle Paul goes on in his writings to say, listen, Jesus Christ, when he was raised from the dead, it wasn't just a few of them. There was over 500 of them that he revealed himself to. He starts naming different people. His premise is, go ask him. This is objective data. I once read a number of years ago that if, if you had 500 people giving evidence for something and they all took like six minutes, you'd have like 50 hours or something ridiculous of evidence proving I saw him. I don't think there's any court in the world that if you had 50 hours of evidence from 500 people all saying, I saw him, that would go, oh, I don't think you did. The objective reality is you must have done because you're all saying it. You're all saying it. All these details are given to us right here. They're put to us right here because Dr. Luke wants us to understand this is 
true. Your faith you can have certainty on. The realities of the resurrection. It definitely happened. And so he's taking time to help us see your faith. It is true. And it is real. Christ has risen. And that is the realities of what took place. So then number two, the realities of what it all means. Just to close. Here's the realities. It's the one overarching reality in it all is simply this. Through Jesus, hope has come to every single one of us in the room. Through Jesus Christ, my friends, hope has come. See, maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Thanks for coming. I'm aware it can be pretty weird, really, when you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you come to a church like this and they're clapping and waving. You're like, who are they waving at? I have no idea. There's so many things that take place in church life that can appear a little strange, and I get that. And we respect you for being here, and you are our honored guests. But I want you to know this morning, I have good news for you. Hope has come. And his name is Jesus. We see him heralded in Luke chapter 2, all the way back at the start of this gospel. Luke chapter 2, 2,000 years ago, there are a group of shepherds grazing with their sheep up in the hills of Bethlehem. And an angel appears to them. And this is what the angel cries out. The angel says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. He is heralding in that moment the news of great joy for all people. And it is great joy for you. See, the Bible makes it clear, as you examine it, that God made us. And he made us to find our joy and our hope and our satisfaction in him. He made us to be with him, and he was always designed to be the source of joy and hope and satisfaction. The problem is, each and every one of us didn't fancy that. We just decided to go for the kingdom instead. We rejected the king, but took the kingdom, and that's why the world is in such a mess. Why is there millions of people around the world without hope? All over the place in their feelings, constantly feeling empty. Constantly feeling that, I don't quite fit, there's something not quite right. It's because this has broken. And you were made for this. You were made for a vertical relationship. You were made for a vertical relationship with God himself. He was meant to be the source of your joy and your hope and satisfaction. And yet you, like me, have rejected him by embracing the kingdom instead. And quite frankly, in the Bible, that's what sin is about. Sin is rejecting God and instead just going for his kingdom. It doesn't satisfy at least not longingly and overwhelmingly and ongoingly. But we just think, if I go for something else in the world, maybe that will satisfy. My friends, it's a wild goose chase without a goose. The only way to answer the question is God. And yet we're cut off from God. So how do we get back? Well, maybe we can start doing good works, right? We can do good works. That's how I can bridge the gap. Never going to be enough. Or maybe I can start praying. I could pray. That's what I can do. He'll like that. Negative. Or maybe I could start going to see saints or all sorts of different things that lots of different religions do. You can do all that. It's never going to be enough. 
Well, how do I get right with God? How do I get back to this joy and hope and satisfaction in him? There's only one way. Jesus said it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The one who rose again claimed one thing and one thing only. He claimed that I am the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to the Father is except through me. He gave his life as a ransom for many. And he made it clear, if you put your faith in me as your Lord and Savior, if you believe I died in your place, then you will have life and that in abundance. In that moment, you'll be forgiven and redeemed and heaven will be your home. It's not Christianity. It's not about what we can do for God. It's about what he has done for us in the person of Jesus. And it's about receiving that gift through faith in him. You know, C.S. Lewis once said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. But what it cannot be is moderately important. It's so true. If Christianity is true, then it's everything. Jesus is the only way to God. He's the only way to get right with God. If it's true, it's of infinite importance. If it's false, then everyone in the room that's claimed to be a Christian is more to be pitied than anybody else on the planet. Because you're wasting your time. It's a hoax. But what it can't be is something in between. Right for you, but not right for others. It doesn't work like that. It's either true or it's stupid. And we all have to make our decision. I was 20 years old when I made my decision. I was busy wrecking my life at the time. And I started to realize I was wrecking my life. And I put my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And I knew in that moment what it was to be forgiven and redeemed and adopted. I knew in my heart heaven was my home. And I was amazed by grace because it seemed scandalous to me. I realized in and of myself, I'm a jerk. But you're amazing. And you died for me. And I love you. And I want to honor you and live for you. I was 20 years old. 27 years ago now. And I look back and I haven't changed in that desire and that hope. Jesus changed my life. And friends, if you don't know him, he can change yours as well. Put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. And you'll know the joys, like me, of this great salvation. Maybe you're here, though, today, and you already know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Well, my friends, I want to encourage you. Hope has come for you as well. Merry Christmas. Hope has come. And what all that means, then, knowing that Jesus Christ has indeed risen from the dead, what all that means is that therefore every reality in this book is true. All of it. What it means is that you really are forgiven of your sin. Removed as far as the east is from the west. He really has washed you clean and blotted it out and chooses by his grace to remember it no more. What it all means is that he really has adopted you into his family. He cares for you as a child. You know, one of the things we have in, in this local church is a lot of parents with kids. And when you watch parents with kids is they are very hands-on giving a lot of attention to the kids. That is just a dim reflection of how God the Father feels about you and how he cares for you with intimacy and knowledge. You know, for each one of us, our mom and dad used to go to sleep. Not so God the Father. Always awake, always present, always purposeful. And what all this means is that heaven really will be your home. As we sang about earlier, 
when you die, you will go to paradise. And you, like me, will stand there and go, I can't believe I get to be here. Well, what are the grounds of you being there? Well, the guy in the middle of the cross said I could come through faith in him. So that's what I did. And that's the only grounds on which I can stand here. My friends, hope has come for you. And so as you read this book, don't just read it with some type of, oh, I really need to do this because it's, you know, it's what Christians do. No, no, read it understanding this is all true. And it's your story and God's story. And it will change your life. Jesus Christ came and he died and he rose again. So may we live in the good of all that we see. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for being with us this morning. And I thank you for once again walking this road with us. Lord, we can see it. We can see it in our minds. And that's a gift of your spirit at work in our minds. Lord, I do thank you that you did indeed rise again. Lord, I thank you in an overwhelming way of what all that means. Because what all that means is that everything we read in this book is true. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. You are God incarnate. And you did indeed come to give your life as a ransom for many and a desire to seek and save the lost, which includes us. So Lord, would we live in awe of all that we see? Would we stand amazed as we think about what you've done and who you are? And would we long for that day when we see you seated at the right hand of the Father, And we gaze at you, the risen Christ. It is finished.